Hello and welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Galetti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the 2019 California Lawyers Association annual meeting in Monterey, California. So joining me now, I have a great guest. I've gotten a little, little time to get to know him via phone a couple times. I think you were traveling in the car and now a little bit more uh, just in person. Wonderful to meet you, Albert. And of course, this is Albert Camacho. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Well, before we get into our discussion, and thank you so much for helping me get this roadmap here. Really, really helpful. Uh, to tell our audience a little bit more about yourself. Where do you work? What do you do? Well, I've been an attorney with the Los Angeles County Public Defender's Office for nearly 25 years. I'm currently assigned to our immigration unit downtown. So what I'm doing is I do what are referred to as Padilla consultations. Uh, my colleagues will call or email or text me or cell phone me and say they have a client who's a non-citizen with a specific type of case. And I walk them through whether or not that's going to get them deported or what other negative immigration consequences may come from that. And then I also teach this subject to our lawyers. Excellent. So, Albert, you were presenting, co-presenting in a uh, sort of a mashup CLE session here with uh, with the family law section, and you, of course, provided the criminal law insight. And the title of that uh, that presentation was called "The Intersectionality of Criminal Law and Family Law in Domestic Violence Cases." So, just so you know, I I did not have anything to do with the title. Uh, I thought this was a little simple. If I had written it, it would have been a little more complex than that. But. Yeah, there were a lot of syllables in that yes. title, so I would have appreciated that. But uh, but yeah, tell me a little bit about that. So I know historically that wasn't the case with uh, with the California Bar. They didn't do a lot of these mashups between the different sections. Right. Uh, my understanding is, and I, I've been with the criminal law section now for the past. Uh, six, seven years. And so I was with the section when we were with the state bar. And there really was much more of a premium, I think, that the state bar had of keeping all of the sections separate. So there really wasn't a lot of mixing and matching with sections. There wasn't a lot of, you know, mashups, as you refer, or, or you know, joint enterprises. Uh, they seemed to be frowned upon. At least that was kind of my take on it. And one of the many amazing things about the California Lawyers Association is they take the complete opposite view. They really want the sections to work together, to intermix, intermingle, do joint presentations. Uh, they really would like us to reach out to CYLA, um, which under the state bar really was kind of kept separate. So this is a great example of the difference between us being with the state bar and, and us being with a much more dynamic organization known as the California Lawyers Association. Uh, I got to present uh, with a family lawyer which we never would have done at the old State Bar annual meeting. Well, it had a, it had a nice spinoff for information. So it uh, two parts uh, primarily, so immigration and protective orders. And so the, the criminal law component of that put an interesting spin. So why don't we break off the protective orders first? So uh, maybe just uh, if you could help our audience out, just kind of give them the skinny of, of your part of that presentation. Well, um, for those of you that are really unfamiliar with the phrase protective order, uh, think of it as a restraining order. A restraining order is a type of protective order. So these are orders that are given by generally uh, local superior court judges that uh, are requested by one party or another seeking to either have someone just not annoy, molest, or harass them, or to stay away from them entirely. You know, the full-blown restraining order will have that traditional, you know, you shall not be within 100 yards of this person. You won't, you can't call them, text them, email them, etc. 
They're usually issued in the civil law context, so we'll see this in dependency court, we'll see this mostly in family law courts. However, we do have these also in criminal law courts. And so what a lot of what we were talking about in this particular presentation was just kind of the differences in how the orders are created, how the orders are generated, and how the orders are enforced. Let's uh, let's talk about the distinction between the two. So there's, uh, as I understand it, a narrow versus sort of broad aspect of the civil versus the criminal protective order. Yes, and forgive me, you know, I, I do criminal law, you know, 20, you know, 100%. So, you know, forgive whatever ignorance I may uh, reflect about family law. But my take on, on the family law order, particularly as the uh, presentation was unfolding, was that, you know, it is a civil order and the the grounds that you have to establish in order to obtain one are fairly broad. You know, a person can come in, fill out the application for a temporary sooner, and, and they're writing down the things that are happening to them that they don't like and they think are either annoying or dangerous. And they can be virtually anything that you can think of. And so it's up to a family law judge to figure out whether that behavior, whatever it is, warrants the issuing of an order. Criminal law, we're, we're much more specific. Courts can issue a criminal law order both at the beginning of a case and at the end. And if they're issuing it at the beginning of the case, they're usually only doing it when the defendant in court is charged with a specific domestic violence offense, something like spousal battery or battery of a girlfriend, child abuse, things like that. So it's a much more circumscribed set of charges that, and conduct that we deal with. And then at the end of the case, it's generally part of someone's sentence, uh, particularly when they're placed on probation. It's almost standard that we're going to see some sort of protective order issued. So the criminal ones are, uh, sounds like more difficult to get, but when you do get them, there's, there's more, I guess, more enforcement power to them. Well, in terms of getting, you've hit upon another major difference between the two. In the, in the family law context, it really is someone asking for an order, seeking to obtain one. Whereas in the criminal law context, it's this person is alleged to have committed a crime and the judge is just saying, I'm going to order that you, know, you stay away from the, the victim or the alleged victim or the witness. So it's not really an application in the criminal law context. It is a direct result of some specific conduct that, that basically earned the order. Okay. Well, let's transition the protective orders into the part about immigration and as it ties in to family law. So you brought up some really interesting points. And so uh, just in terms of, of people that uh, find themselves in the country illegally and there's a domestic uh, violence matter, you were saying that there's uh, kind of an additional reason why they may not want to report it in. Right. You know, as I said at the outset when I was talking about what I actually do, you know, my expertise at this point really is in the land of what we call, we call it crimmigration. It's, it's the melding of criminal law and immigration law. And, and that area is very, very complex and in some ways very arcane. But one of the bright line rules that all of us that practice in this area are very much aware of is that any criminal conviction involving domestic violence in any way is what we refer to as a deportable offense. So if someone is a non-citizen in this country, whether they're completely undocumented, meaning that they have no status whatsoever, or they have some sort of status that's short of being a citizen, like being a legal permanent resident, green card holder, or being a refugee, asylee, uh, being a DACA, a dreamer, being convicted of a domestic violence offense is fatal automatically costs you the status you have 
and it automatically leads to your deportation. So from a criminal law standpoint, we're always inquiring of our clients, are you a citizen? If not, do you have status? And if we're looking at a, at a client that's a non-citizen with a restraining order offense or, a dom- or another domestic violence offense, and I should point out that a violation of a restraining order is considered under federal immigration law a domestic violence offense, our antenna go up. We realize, okay, we need to be aware of this. We need to be able to try and work around it or at least advise our client why we can't. And one of the points I wanted to make in the presentation was that family lawyers really should be aware of that also. They need to advise that they need to advise their clients about that. And so this raises an issue that we are seeing nationwide. Um, most domestic violence cases, and, and I'm taking a, a small risk in generalizing, but most domestic violence cases are usually involving a, a couple uh, in some sort of uh, romantic or, or marriage type relationship, and someone is being abused. And typically, the abuser is the male, who also happens to usually be the sole breadwinner. And the alleged victim, the person that's suffering the abuse, you know, is not working. And so, she has a Hobson's choice. She's being abused and she wants to do something about it, but it's common knowledge among the immigrant population that these type of offenses lead to removal from the country. And that's a horrific choice to be faced with and a horrific choice to have to make. And in speaking with uh, Tamara Benefield, who's the family lawyer that I presented with, she noted that she's had cases where been, there's been a great amount of reluctance on the part of, of women that she was representing and trying to get to, into court to get a restraining order that they wouldn't cooperate for that very reason. Wow, that's, uh, that's pretty insightful. You know, and I don't know why that was not obvious to me, you know, when you were discussing with the man. Obviously, we've, we've heard about the news where, uh, you know, an immigrant population may not report crimes. So they don't want ICE to come down and start sniffing around because they're worried about getting deported themselves. But I never thought about it from the domestic violence point of view. Right. And again, you hit upon the fact that you're kind of familiar with this kind of larger global issue that is getting the press. And what we're talking about in kind of this family law, criminal law, domestic violence context is just a small subset of that. But it's one that we live with with every day. Let's transition into the, the criminal law section itself. So you know, this, this section's uh, got a unique, uh, it's got a unique feature that you told me about, and uh, it includes three distinct different perspectives when it comes to criminal law. Yes, I, I should uh, preface this. I've been a defense lawyer exclusively in Los Angeles County for nearly 25 years. And typically defense lawyers in the state of California, they have a couple of affinity groups that they are members of that they will get their, their MCLE credits from, they'll get uh, publications from, and, and various other uh, items. And prosecutors in California have their own affinity groups. And so most criminal lawyers in California depending on what side of the defense bar they are on, they've got their affinity groups that they will they will work with and get their information from. And of course, that information is going to be slanted in a way. Well, what we offer here at the section is a blend of defense lawyers, prosecutors, and judges. Our executive committee is always comprised of a mix of defense lawyers and prosecutors. We scrupulously try to keep that XCOM membership split as evenly as possible. And 
as one of the byproducts of being involved in the XCOM is we've had several members over the years uh, become elevated to the Superior Court bench in California. And a lot of them remain as advisors. So, for instance, uh, I am uh, chairing my very last XCOM meeting tomorrow morning uh, before I, I leave and turn the gavel over to my successor. And I very much look forward to these meetings because the group is incredibly congenial, a lot of humor, a lot of brain power, and a lot of friendliness. And we can sit in that room as a perfect mix of bench officer, prosecutor, and defense lawyer, and we can talk about criminal law issues in ways that these other affinity groups simply can't. And that's reflected in the programming that we put out. Any program that we either write or present, we're very much aware of our audience. We know it is split down the middle between prosecutor and defense. We know there are bench officers listening. And so we make it our, our focus to keep our analysis as neutral and as informative as possible. Let's talk about some of your upcoming meetings and plans and uh, programs that are uh, going to be unveiling in the coming months. Well, as, as I said, I'm... I'm handing over the gavel at the end of the meeting tomorrow. So uh, my current vice chair, uh, Leif Douch, takes over basically at the close of the meeting. And our tradition with our XCOM is we usually will hold a meeting hosted by the new chair about a month or so after the annual meeting. So we have our uh, meeting planned for the weekend of, I believe, November 17th. I uh, may be off by a day or so. Uh, it will be in San Francisco. And we refer to that meeting as our long-range planning meeting. And one of the things that gets discussed is, what would we like to do in the coming year? And so I can't really speak uh, for Leif. I don't, I don't know what his plans are. I, I can tell you that there are a couple of projects that the XCOM has talked about over the past couple of years that we would like to do. Uh, one thing we really, really want to do uh, one of the things we've noticed is that a lot of our, our members in the section tend to be from the, from the urban environment. A lot of members from Los Angeles, a lot from San Francisco, a lot from Sacramento, a lot from Fresno and Bakersfield. But there are so many more lawyers in the state in the more rural areas that we really would like to reach out to. And so one project we've talked about is doing some live standalone presentations in some of the outlying areas to bring in lawyers that perhaps feel un underrepresented by, by our section. I've had conversations with uh, Ono uh, Donsumu, who is our uh, executive director of the CLA. I've voiced this request to her. In fact, she sat in on a meeting back in May, and she's very excited about it. Uh, so it's something that we are looking into, and I would love to see happen. We're running short on time, but I did want to hit up the publications part of the criminal law section. If you could tell us a little bit about that and how you're incorporating some of these opportunities for writing opportunities for law students. Certainly. Uh, we have two publications, one in modern 21st century electronic form. We call it the e-bulletin. Those are distributed uh, generally monthly via email to our section members. And it's a grab bag of all sorts of information. Generally, we're including appellate court opinions from up and down the state. We're including you know, little tidbits of criminal law information that crosses our desk that we find interesting, the occasional criminal law book review, but it really is viewed as kind of a grab bag. Uh, there's all sorts of things that, that could appear in the e-bulletin. Our signature publication is referred to as the Criminal Law Journal. It is a quarterly, and it usually 
involves the publication of longer pieces, uh, some quite scholarly, about very specific esoteric areas of criminal law. So it's, it's, more, it's more of our uh, museum piece. And we host every single year the Marshall Shulman Writing Competition. And the way that works is we send emails to basically all of the major law schools in the country. We advertise the competition. And what the competition is, it's a writing competition. Law students are invited to write a scholarly, properly written and researched legal article related to the field of criminal law. And it can be tangentially related. We're not that strict, but it has to, it has to represent some part of criminal law. And we host this competition every year. And both the, generally the winners and our honorable mentions will get published in the journal, which gives a law student an opportunity to publish a scholarly article in a journal while they're still in law school. And I don't know of too many sections that are offering that, but that's something we're quite proud of. Well, I think that's a fantastic opportunity for uh, fledging lawyers there. Obviously, we're reaching the end of the road for our episode today. We're running out of time. But uh, Albert, it's been a pleasure. Got to know you a little bit. It seems like I talk to you a lot while you're traveling in your car. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, you seem to reach me when I'm in the middle of traffic or in the middle of a very long drive. But the conversations have always been entertaining. And, and I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. And before we close it out, just, uh, you know, if our listeners, they want to reach out, learn a little bit more about the criminal law section or about what you do, how can they find you? Best way to find me would be at uh, my work email, which would be uh, a Camacho, A-C-A, Amazon Mother A, C-H-O, at pubdef.lacounty.gov. Feel free to email me anytime. All right. Once again, thank you, Albert. Thank you so much for having me. Also, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or best yet, your favorite podcasting app. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Uh-huh.